A pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program. He has written a piece available to you at theconversation.com entitled Canadian Election 2021. Risk-averse charities, civil society groups must show up. He who says this is Dr. John Cameron, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Halifax's Dalhousie University. Dr. Cameron, John, good morning, sir, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks, Julie. It's great to have you with us, John. Let's talk a little bit about who we're talking about here. There's these civil groups and then civil society organizations, as you refer to them. And you talk about them running the gamut from environmental groups to labor unions. Broaden that out for us a little bit, John, and talk a little bit more about the types of groups you're talking about. Sure. So in Canada, there are somewhere around 170,000 uh, registered nonprofit groups. So these are groups that are uh, have registered legal status as nonprofits. Most of them are registered at the provincial level. Mm-hmm. Um, within that 170,000, about 85,000 have charitable status. So uh, these are the organizations that if you make a donation to them, they can give you a charitable tax receipt. Okay. Uh, they're all registered uh, registered at the federal level with the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, and again, so 170,000 in total, about 85,000 with charitable status. Uh, you know, these are the, the groups that are uh, generally not businesses, mm-hmm. um, uh, but play all sorts of important roles in our society in terms of delivering services, but as I argue, also uh, engaging in public policy debates in the the formation of public policy in Canada. So, but the, your point, uh, the, uh, the article, and, and, and I, it's a good article and a very valid point. You're talking about how these civil groups, these civil society organizations, be it a labor union or an environmental group or some other special interest group, and there are, as you just said, at least 85,000 of them who qualify for charitable status. These people have a habit of disappearing rather than stepping up and going, hey, it's election time, folks. I know you're thinking about a lot of things. Here's an issue that we really care about. Why don't you ask your candidates about this? Instead of taking that position, John, a lot of them vanish. Why? Right. So a lot of this has to do with uh, with the federal government rules, the Election Canada rules, um, for what Elections Canada calls third-party advertising uh, during election campaigns. Um, but those rules also fit into uh, a longer historical context where the federal government in particular, of all political stripes, um, but it reached a peak under the Harper government, um, have uh, taken a pretty hard line against uh, charitable groups in particular, but also nonprofits uh, that put forward policy positions against what the government is doing. So, um, you know, current in the 2021 election, a lot of groups are looking back at recent history and saying, look, we've been burned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's safer to just stay silent, to be quiet, uh, than to stick our necks out and engage in uh, a debate about public policies that we think is really important. So for Canadians this election, we've got climate change, health care, affordability, uh, I mean, Halifax, uh, housing affordability, homelessness. I mean, issues on the top of the agenda, there are a lot of groups with a lot of experience on those issues, uh, direct frontline experience, research experience, and they're, uh, I mean, I don't want to put them all under the same umbrella, but a lot of them uh, are going quiet rather than stepping forward and engaging in the debate. And I said, that's largely about the rules and, and the way that they're interpreting the rules in the context of 
recent history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Cameron, you said some of these groups have decided amongst themselves, quote, we've been burned before, so we're going to just keep a low profile again. So have there been negative consequences for civil groups who have voiced an opinion other than or that runs contrary to government policy in the past? Yeah, so the, the I mentioned this reaching a, a peak under the Harper government. Um, starting around 2008, 2009, there were a number of uh, charitable groups and, and groups with nonprofit status uh, that were defunded by the government. So groups that had been funded by the federal government in the past that lost their funding, uh, primarily environmental groups that were opposed to pipeline construction, um, also, a number of human rights groups, uh, domestic, social justice, anti-poverty groups, mm. uh, international development groups um, lost their funding uh, then or some of their funding. Then in 2012, uh, the then uh, conservative government um, allocated additional funding to the Canada Revenue Agency to conduct special what they called uh, political activities audits of Canadian charities. So this was probing uh, the public policy activities of Canadian charities to check that what they were doing complied with the rules. Uh, and they found very few violations of the actual rules. Right. But the process of being audited by the CRA um, was enough of an intimidation factor. It was you know, these are onerous, detailed audits sure. uh, that, for small organizations, kind of you know overwhelmed their administrative capacity. Just the threat of being audited was enough for a lot of organizations to to go quiet or to you know to be careful. Um, so among uh, networks of uh, charities, in particular in Canada. Through those years, 2012 until the, the federal election in 2015, uh, a lot of groups referred to what they called a, a, a climate of silence or a climate of fear in mm -hmm. terms of, of public policy engagement. And the term advocacy uh, I mean, really became uh, considered to be a, a bad word, a four-letter word uh, in a lot of uh, public policy circles. Interesting. And a lot of this, so came about as a result of watching what the next-door neighbors have done vis-a-vis -vis special interests interest groups. They call them political action committees or PACs, or now they have super PACs. And these are third-party, alleged third-party organizations, many of whom, of course, have incredible close ties to various campaigns. Nonetheless, they represent themselves as being independent third-party organizations, and they have the perfect legal right to gather gazillions of dollars and, and mount enormous advertising campaigns to benefit their agenda, not necessarily either political party and so the government of Canada in in terms of the rules and why so many civil organizations in Canada do not participate the original intention was to, to make sure that a Canadian uh, group could never get to the point of being a pack and having that much influence on the process right right yeah so uh, so elections Canada the federal government uh, put in place the um, mechanisms in uh, in the Elections Act was very much trying to avoid uh, a repeat of the American situation. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2010, there was a, a U.S. Supreme Court decision called Citizens United uh, that declared any restrictions on free speech uh, in terms of the engagement of uh, nonprofits uh, in election campaigns, any restrictions were considered to be un unconstitutional. Right. Uh, and that's resulted in just massive amounts of spending. Uh, I think in the 2016 election, the 
the total spending by so-called super PACs uh, was about $1.4 billion in the 2020 election in the U.S. It was $2.7 billion. Wow. Uh, so you've got a small number of very, very wealthy individuals injecting huge amounts of money to promote their particular issues in in the election campaign. John, I have to take uh, a break. So the Canadian government, yep. Sorry, I have to take a break for the news. You've just said in the 2020 election, they, the, the PACs combined spent $2.7 in the most recent American election. Very quickly, do you have any numbers uh, that were spent by Canadian, combined Canadian special interest groups during the most recent Canadian election? Yeah. So in 2019 in Canada, the comparable number was just over one million dollars. Wow, as so, compared to so two really and a half not billion. Not a lot of money, right? John, the uh, Dr. John Cameron with us from Dalhousie University. He is a professor in the Department of International Development Studies and the author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled Canadian Election 2021, Risk-Averse Charities, Civil Society Groups Must Show Up. And Dr. Cameron, before we get back to this stuff, uh, what's your closest border crossing? We're, uh, White Rock uh, is the uh, about 30 miles, about 50 clicks south of Vancouver. That's how close the U.S. border is to us. So it's, it's a thing here it's not a big deal to pop across to the states uh, assuming all things are equal and the borders open but that has not been possible for a long time what's the closest border crossing to where you are in halifax it's a bit more of a trip for us uh we have to drive uh, a couple hours through nova scotia and then four at least four hours through new brunswick to get to the closest borders so uh-huh. probably a six-hour drive um so not top of mind right um uh, for a lot of us, but uh, you know, certainly the Halifax is an international airport. So we've got flights. Uh, you know, lots of people looking forward to being able to fly uh, out of the province again and, and to the states. Indeed. Now back to the matter at hand: this whole business of civil groups showing up. Citizens who don't normally think much about public policy pay more attention during election campaigns. Their votes can determine the contours of public policy for years to come. This is a quote from Dr. Cameron's article, and the reason he's here with us today. And, and John, you talked about the intimidation factor that the government of Canada is capable of uh, exuding, and during the Harper years. Nine through 15, there was some funding uh, adjustments to some organizations that saw fit to speak out publicly against its policies. And there were audits, surprise, surprise, from the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, extra funding was given to them to audit uh, some Canadian charities, resulting in a fear, a uh, climate rather, of fear and a lot of self silencing behavior on a lot of those, on, on the part of a lot of those groups. Now, you do point out, though, that the rules changed in. In 2019, what sort of changes did the Liberals introduce? That's right. So uh, going into the the 2015 election, uh, one of the promises that uh, Justin Trudeau's Liberal government made was to change the rules for charities to enable them to engage in public policy debates. And uh, there's an interesting uh, story there, uh, uh, some court cases, but the eventual outcome um, was a change to Canada's Income Tax Act and to the regulations, the CRA regulations for charities that now allows charitable groups to spend uh, up to 100% uh, of their annual expenditures on what the Canada Revenue Agency calls, and it's a mouthful, public policy development and dialogue activities, uh, which is a long technical term really saying, you know, engaging in public policy debate, sure, so advocating but- to the government for change, engaging Canadians in thinking about public policy. Right. 
And ha- because of those changes, because of that apparent uh, easing of intimidation realities from Ottawa, have you noticed, is there a perceptible increase in participation this election as compared to the last one? Yeah. So so one thing, I guess, to be clear, there, there are different sets of rules that apply in different contexts. So right now, in the context of the election, uh, the most pertinent rules are the, the Elections Canada rules for third parties to engage in elections. Uh, and it's important to distinguish those from the rules that apply to charities, um, which apply only to charities. The rules uh, for engagement as third parties in elections apply to charities, nonprofit groups, individual citizens, anyone who wants to spend more than $500 to boost their uh, position in public policy debates. Um, but going back to, I think, the spirit of your question, mm-hmm. which is, have there been any changes since uh, since the Liberal government introduced the new regulations, which was in uh, early 2019? Uh, so far, I've seen very few. Uh, and what I think that, that speaks to is that the regulations uh, are one thing. Um, something quite separate is how organizations understand and respond to those regulations, um, which is, you know, the regulations don't determine everything. So, you know, another challenge that a lot of uh, nonprofits and charities face is fundraising yes. for public policy work. Mm-hmm. Um, ordinary people like uh, I'll say you and me, but, you know, the donors to uh, charitable donors across Canada, many of us prioritize when we're making a donation. We're thinking, I want to see this money have maximum effect. Sure. I, want it, I want it to go to where the problems are. I want to solve problems with my donation. I'm giving this group $50. I want to know that my $50 or $100 is going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the challenges with public policy work, uh, research, uh, advocacy, is that it is by definition long-term. It's also highly uncertain. Uh, So we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, An organization could spend 20 years advocating for change and still not be successful. And if we look back in time at, you know, some of the big changes that have uh, had an impact on the health and well-being of Canadians. So these might be controversial for some people, but I'll put out like seatbelt laws, mm-hmm. uh, anti-smoking laws. Um, you know, those are campaigns that were years and years uh, of advocacy before the rules changed. Good point. Um, so it can often seem, or, you know, something like uh, homelessness or climate change. Um, you could put, uh, you could make donations year after year after year to a group that's advocating for change. Uh, and even after 10 or 20 years, they might not achieve that change. Whereas, you know, in terms of immediate impact, you could give your $10 to uh, a homeless person or a shelter or a food bank, and you know that it's having immediate impact. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is, and the argument I would make is it's, it's basically a band-aid solution. So in our, you know, our funding, we tend to, uh, actually be more willing to give money for Band-Aid solutions than to long-term policy fixes, even though changing the policy or changing the law is likely to have a bigger long-term impact. That's a harder sell for a lot of donors. So nonprofit and charitable groups, they know who their donors are. They they have to, you know, they, they know the challenges of fundraising. It's really hard to raise money in this climate. Um, and so they have to respond to the interests of their, their funders and donors. Play, and it's called play to your base, isn't it? Right, exactly. Uh, and so oftentimes it's difficult for them to raise the money to do the policy work. Yeah, John, very quickly here, um, the the notion of the $500 sort of a figure be, being some, some kind of a stopper, it's 2021 for crying out loud, a, 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 a clever 
organization can do an awful lot on social media for nothing these days and still achieve quite an impact. The $500 is an intimidating uh, number for sure because it doesn't represent much opportunity to get much done. But if you're smart about it, you can, you can, you, there, you can do end runs around that, can't you? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, you know, social media, email, uh, websites, um, those are all opportunities. As, you know, all the electronic uh, mechanisms, communication mechanisms are uh, ways to promote uh, positions in public policy debates without spending any money. That said, uh, just, you know, in our last break, the first ad was an election campaign ad by yes. a political party. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot from the political parties right now. We're not hearing very much from anyone else. So, you know, the question is, do we want to let the political parties completely set the agenda for the election debate? Or do we also want to hear from other organizations say, you know what, here's a really important issue. We'd like to see uh, the candidates in the election speak about this. We want to know what their positions are on on this issue, whether it's it's climate change, homelessness, uh, mm. forest fire prevention, um, you know, a whole gamut of issues that the political parties may not be speaking to. Indeed. Dr. Cameron, a real pleasure to have you on the program today. It's an important conversation to have, and uh, I hope over the course of the next few weeks, because we're just getting our feet wet with this uh, campaign, uh, mercifully short though it will be, still plenty of opportunities for plenty of, uh, shall we say, third-party players to show up on the field and let us know what they are thinking about and why we should be thinking about it too. The article, friends, at the conversation Conversation.com is entitled Canadian Election 2021. Risk-averse charities, civil society groups must show up. Its author, Dr. John Cameron from Dalhousie University in Halifax. John, thanks very much for this. A pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks very much to you. Coming up next for us, a look at Reminiscence and the rest of the week's new movies. Rick Forchuk on deck after this. Recently, amid much, much pre-election fanfare, governments at all levels announced the George Massey Tunnel will be replaced with another tunnel that will be comprised of eight lanes, with two of the lanes dedicated to rapid bus transit lanes and an active transportation pathway. In the wake of that uh, much-publicized announcement, the Surrey Board of Trade very quick off the mark to express disappointment with that decision. Joining us this morning is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Hubberman, back on the program. Anita, good morning, and thank you for getting up early to join us. This is important stuff. Absolutely. Good morning. Good to have you with us. So what's the beef? Why, why uh, the disappointment with the tunnel? Uh, were you uh, proponents of the bridge option uh, instead? We were proponents of the bridge option, and the eight-lane tunnel that was announced last week simply will not meet the region's transportation needs. Uh, and certainly, uh, the bridge infrastructure that was announced by the previous government, it would have been right now 80% built. We still, now with this new announcement, 
Uh, it's going to take years for an environmental review and then eventually construction. And construction costs will escalate, too. Mm-hmm. We were very disappointed, Sterling, with the decision made by the B.C. government. Uh, Surrey uh, is going to be the largest city in British Columbia by 2030. The bridge is expected to be in service uh, by 2030. We're still growing by 1,200, 1,400 people a month. A month, yeah. And really, this is only um, not eight lanes, but really six lanes, uh, because two of the lanes are dedicated to, uh, well, one of them, an active transportation pathway, Correct. which is bicycling, and mm-hmm. the other one is bus. a rapid bus transit, right? Yeah. So what was the, logistically, and I, I don't actually remember all of the details, but remind us, Anita, if you could please, why you selected the bridge option, you preferred it over the tunnel, just the, the the infrastructure logistics. Why, to you and your group, was the bridge a more attractive option? What did it do that a tunnel can't? Well, the Metro Vancouver mayors, uh, they had uh, sent a letter to the BC government saying that they were in favor of a new eight-lane bridge with a multi-use pathway. Mm-hmm. And we said we opposed that because the tunnel is actually uh, environmentally unsafe. A bridge could be built faster. Um, Much of the work to build a bridge was already done uh, when the NDP came into power. And, uh, you know, really when we're taking a look at deep bored tunnels, um, they are considered high risk and would require one of the largest tunnel boring machines in the world. There's a risk of multiple sinkholes during construction, um, interchanges need to be reconfigured, mm-hmm. ground densification would be needed on both sides of the river. And and really, when we are looking at earthquake uh, possibilities, True, yep. uh, when we're looking at other interchanges that also need to be improved, um, you know, this is really not the right solution. And so... Uh, when uh, the mayors say it's uh, a bridge would have caused some kind of visibility shadowing aspect to existing residents, uh, that that argument really doesn't make sense. Uh, so that's why we were in favor of a bridge option in conjunction with uh, looking at uh, the transportation network in full mm-hmm. in terms of improved bus services in Surrey. We're so starved of of uh, different transit options in Surrey and the South Fraser region. Uh, restarting passenger rail service to the east as far as hope, using existing transportation um, infrastructure that we have, and right. maybe even utilizing other types of technology to get people around, move goods. So, again, I'm quoting from uh, 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 an article in uh, Business in Surrey uh, attributed to you. This quote, Surrey is compromised again in terms of transportation infrastructure. This, uh, what, uh, the, uh, the, this does not meet Surrey's needs to move people and move goods. So we're talking uh, six, realistically, instead of eight, six-lane tunnel uh, in, in all the – what – about that, Anita, uh, misses the mark in terms of addressing Surrey's future requirements. 
Well, as I mentioned, we're still growing by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1.3 million people are expected in the metro region uh, by 2030 as well. Many of them will live in Surrey in the South Fraser region. Uh, We are moving people, uh, you know, from uh, regular vehicles uh, to electric vehicles. Uh, A six-lane bridge, really, or a six-lane tunnel uh, that was announced simply won't meet the growing population demands of our city, of our region in the South Fraser, and, uh, and really in the metro region. So uh, when we take a look at infrastructure such as the Patello Bridge, you're placing a new Patello Bridge with four lanes, and, and the existing one has four lanes. Right. How, how are we preparing for future population growth? Not everyone will take a bus. Uh, and so, uh, because our region is so spread out, it simply does not meet Surrey's transportation needs. Interesting. In, in the matter of the Patello Bridge, the other side of the bridge, of course, is New Westminster. And over there, on their side of the bridge, they say they're just simply not equipped to deal with the kind of volume that Surrey would really appreciate uh, incorporating into the new Patello Bridge. They don't have the capacity to handle the traffic that the kind of bridge you're asking for would, would put into New Westminster. It would be hideously expensive. Are you buying that? No, <laughs> I think uh, absolutely we've had conversations with the city of New Westminster as well as uh, the Translate Mayor's Council on this and the BC government who is now responsible for building that bridge. Mm-hmm. There could, there's always a way to make it a win-win for everyone, uh, for businesses and for residents. And, uh, you know, simply saying there's no way we want additional traffic in New Westminster doesn't really meet uh, the region's transportation needs. We all need to be working together right, here. Right, right, right. And, and, and this transportation piecemeal approach uh, doesn't work for anyone. So uh, I, I really, you know, in February 2020, before the pandemic hit, the BC government promised the South Fraser and the Fraser Valley region a planning table around looking at transportation uh, solutions, technologies, what's there right now. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so they announced that formally and the pandemic hit. It's been on hold. We've been asking, let's convene it as you promised, but nothing has come to the fore. I'm Sterling Fox, joined by Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman. We're talking about the big decision announced a week or two ago by all levels of government that they're finally going to commit to something to get through the Massey Tunnel replacement. It's going to be another tunnel instead of the bridge that the folks at the Surrey Board of Trade uh, had chosen. Anita, by the way, uh, there are border crossings in the city of Surrey. And our buzz line question, this is just for you personally, uh, our buzz line question this morning for everyone is uh, if the border was to have been reopened this morning uh, as it was of course it's been extended now another month but it was to have uh, been reopened at midnight last night if it was open this morning would you cross it um you know the cases uh, across the border are are quite high i would be very cautious mm-hmm. uh, about entering the u.s uh, right now and uh 
I know we're we're meeting with the BC government tomorrow morning as well, but uh, you know on uh, a variety of issues. But uh, the border does eventually need to be reopened. Uh, it needs to be reopened based upon health and science. Uh, but goods movement is still happening. Mm-hmm, sure, of course, and has, and has been happening. Uh, so the economy, uh, to some extent, is is still moving across that border here mm-hmm. in Surrey. But on a personal level, like many of our callers this morning, you just a little hesitant, not real keen to jump in your head. Now, Rick Vorchuk, our movie guy who lives in White Rock, said, "Hey, I'd be there in a heartbeat. No problem. Bye." <laughs> so some people are all set, and others, like yourself, still uh, exercising uh, a little caution. I think in these times you have to exercise caution when it comes to the United States and and their perspective on COVID-19. Indeed. So, Anita, let's talk about this bridge decision or the tunnel decision. Either way, I lived in White Rock for a very long time and worked in downtown Vancouver all that time. And believe me, my, my opinion is simply this uh, expensive uh, improvement, either a bridge or a tunnel, is simply going to move the traffic jam from the tunnel to the Oak Street Bridge. Because uh, if, if we can zip through that area that now is super congested and takes an extra long time to just sort of eventually work your way through, if you can zip through that, you're just going to hit the same backup at the bottom of the Oak Street Bridge. They're just moving the problem 10 clicks down the road. It's what I said before. We cannot just take a look at one transportation bottleneck. We need to take a look and provide solutions and implement them uh, around other congestion choke points and perhaps looking at other uh, areas where we could move that traffic. The Oak Street Bridge, yes, very mm-hmm. very terrible uh, right now yep. uh, for drivers and And certainly, you know, there's so many examples around the world where uh, technology, transportation mechanisms can be done much more quickly um, and and more efficiently and more cost effectively. uh, Transportation today is too politicized. Indeed. And you... Uh, uh, you are, now a lot of what you're, you're telling us this morning is relying upon uh, the survey. Now you you keep doing this now. You've done it for five years in a row. You've done your fifth annual Surrey Road Survey. It's about six months old now. You did it in February, but at least you've had an opportunity on a regular basis for the past five years to canvas people in Surrey about their concerns about transportation and infrastructure. What are the big priorities that people who live in Surrey tell you matter to? them the most? Well, we canvassed our members, and we have about 6,000 business contacts that are members, and uh, we had uh, about uh, 20%, 20 to 25% of them respond out of uh, 6,000. You know how surveys are. Mm -hmm. Uh, About 100% said they wanted a bridge instead of a tunnel. Interesting. Uh, And that the Massey Tunnel was a significant... um, choke point in terms of uh, going around the region because we all have to live and work and learn and play across the region. The Massey Tunnel is one of those transportation ingredients Mm -hmm. that was a sore point for a survey respondent. And in terms of those people who did respond, uh, from people who live and work in Surrey, how many of them continue, Anita, to live in Surrey and yet work elsewhere, Coquitlam or even downtown Vancouver? Is it still the majority of people who leave the municipality in the morning to go work elsewhere? 
It's actually decreasing. Uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but uh, as our downtown core and and other businesses uh, are moving into Surrey because we have the most industrial land inventory, more jobs are being created in Surrey. And uh, and people want to live and work in in the same city or region uh, that uh, they work in. And so... So that figure, you know, is declining. But regardless of that, we still have to go to meetings across the region. Mm. We still have to visit family members. And the Massey Tunnel is is one of those infrastructure pieces that we rely on uh, here in Surrey to get around. Indeed. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about other priorities in terms of uh, Surrey, particularly people in the Surrey business community with respect to, to transportation. How critical, for example, is the SkyTrain extension to Langley to those people? Well, it's a step in the right direction. As I mentioned, Surrey has been so starved of transportation investments. And so the Surrey's to Langley SkyTrain infrastructure is uh, is starting, and uh, but it, it's not the only solution that's needed in Surrey. Sure. You can fit the you can fit the cities of Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond into our geography, mm-hmm. and the SkyTrain is being put into an area that is not currently densified. Mm-hmm. Uh, the official community plan is being uh, reworked to increase densification on Fraser Highway. The SkyTrain to Langley uh, is going to go past agricultural lands. You can't really densify That's agricultural right. lands. And so areas such as within Surrey, Cloverdale, South Surrey, Newton, uh, Guilford, you know, so densified already, uh, you know, there's no SkyTrain there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in downtown Surrey, we have SkyTrain, of course, but areas such as Guilford, Newton, South Surrey, Cloverdale, uh, again, compromised. And, and bus, buses can only go so far in terms of meeting the needs of our city. It is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. She is from Elections Canada, an independent nonpartisan agency that reports directly to Parliament. She is Andrea Morantz, Meridi Media Relations with Elections Canada, BC Division, joining us from here in Vancouver this morning. Andrea, thanks for getting up early. It's great to have you with us on the program. I have a ton of questions for you. Good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to answer them all. Well, it's great to have you. And I think for for most British Columbians, regardless of where we live in the province, you know, the concern right now, Andrea, is is for those members of our group who are inconvenienced, to say the very, very least, by forest fires. We are on fire in a large portion of our province, and that is affecting not only the people who live there, but all of the people who are in that area fighting the fires and, and trying to make some sense of it all. Out of all of this, we have a federal election call. How does Elections Canada plan to deal with those British Columbians who may not have an address anymore when Election Day rolls around? Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. That is a a central concern that that we're hearing from people. So um, Elections Canada has established a a task force that's working on contingency plans for people who are affected by the forest fire. And of course, that's going to be slightly different. Different people will have different needs. Mm -hmm. People that are evacuated 
but are still in their their own electoral riding, then the kind of service that they need is is different from people that have been moved to a different electoral riding, and um, and also people that are just you know, watching that wind and praying that it's not going to turn and threaten their home. Mm-hmm. So there are different, different people need different kinds of services. And one of the responsibilities of Elections Canada is to have all of these contingency plans in place so that people can still vote regardless of these kinds of emergency situations. So the the first thing, and probably the best thing for anyone who is affected by the forest fires right now is to consider the mail-in ballot. Okay. It's very straightforward. You can register to receive a mail-in ballot right on um, elections.ca, the Elections Canada website. And um, if, I mean, I I hear your, your next question, I'm sure, which is, well, what about if you don't have your mailing address? Well, you're yeah, not at home. Exactly. You know? <laughs> as, as I referenced in my question, what are you going to do with people who actually don't have an address anymore? And I wasn't being flippant or facetious. I and mean, we've seen no. far too many total destruction of communities here. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's a real question. Not, it's not going to affect millions of us, but it affects all of us to the extent that we know some of us are just so completely out of base. Exactly, exactly. Um, this election, you will be able, if you are in that kind of a circumstance, to ask that your mailing, mail-in ballot be sent to a friend or a relative to, to have it sent elsewhere. Someplace it's safe. Maybe you're staying with someone. You can have it sent there. Oh, okay. And you can vote that way. But that's just one of the ways. You can also, if you're, if you've been, um, evacuated within your riding and to another community, mm-hmm. you can go to an Elections Canada office and vote there. And you can do that right now, anytime during the, up until, um, September 14th. You can vote at any Elections Canada office in the country. Interesting. I, I don't think many of us are even aware of that possibility, Andrea. So if you are displaced by the fires uh, to the point where you're, you're simply nowhere near where you live and you're concerned about the next few weeks because there's such a degree of uncertainty surrounding so many evacuees and yet you, you feel your civic obligation to vote, you can put that one aside. You can do that quickly so you can focus on getting your life back for the rest of this election campaign simply by going to an Elections Canada office and explaining your circumstances. Yes, and uh, if you're on the register of electors, it will come up in the computers at, at the office, and you'll be able to vote. These are special ballots, though, so you have to know who you're voting for, um, because there won't be any names on it. You need to write on it the name of the candidate that you're voting for, and then you're done. You've taken care of it. You've done your vote. It will be counted. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrea, the other group uh, listening to you this morning uh, that is also equally concerned about mail-in ballots are those 
Uh, same people who have expressed more than a little concern about not wanting to cross the border this morning, if indeed it had been opened. No, I'm in no rush to go there. I'm in no rush to elevate my personal risk. I don't even yeah. want to go to a polling station, thank you very much, but I do very much insist on voting. So people who are COVID-averse uh, also might want to just take a pass on the process and yet still very much want to vote. They, too, are eligible to mail in their ballots, aren't they? Yes, anyone can vote by mail. You don't have to have a reason or, or somehow justify it. This is one of the accepted methods of voting, and you can do it. And you just you need to register to receive your mail-in ballot. And people should be aware that you can't change your mind, because once you've registered to vote by mail, your name is struck off the list of electors so that there aren't... You can't vote twice. Any, right. There's no opportunity to do that. Right. So the difference, though, and this is important, the difference between a mail-in ballot and the one you're accustomed to at the polling place is significant because at the polling place, you make your X beside your the party and that candidate is, is named on the ballot. Whereas on a mail-in ballot, what do they see? Do they see liberal, conservative, NDP, minus any specific individual? names? No, it's basically blank, and you write in the name of the person you are voting for. Uh The instructions are very clear. You get a little kit that explains how to do it all, and uh, so it's very very straightforward once you have that. Um, and, And to find out those names, you can go to the elections.ca uh, website and the candidates will be listed, but they're not there yet because, of course, nominations are still open. Right. The other um, option, of course, is to call the party of your choice and ask them who is their candidate in your particular writing. And I know it says so in the kit, and you're given quite specific instructions, but again, for those of us, and I've never voted by mail, so I'm just curious, Andrea. So when you you get this blank ballot, and you're supposed to write in the candidates, and the name of the person for whom you wish to vote, do you write Smith NDP or Smith Liberal or just Smith? Um, It's better to use uh, the the candidate's full name. There have been uh, circumstances, believe it or not, where there have been two people with a very similar name. Oh, I believe that. In in two different um, parties running in the same thing in right. the same district. So definitely get precise information um, and try and be accurate in. The name and the spelling right. of, uh, of the candidate. And keeping in mind that you don't get to change your mind. You, once you've written that ballot, written the name clearly and legibly, etc., on the, on the ballot, that's it. You're done. Uh, the other side, I need to take a break here, but I have to ask you this before yeah. we go. Uh, the other side of this coin is, uh, I, I'm thinking you and your colleagues at Elections Canada, Andrea, are very much anticipating quite an enhanced mail-in ballot component this time around, to the extent that we're already being warned, those of us in the media election reporting business that come election night it's quite possible that many of the results that we're accustomed to receiving in full may be incomplete. Do you agree? Oh, that's right. That's that's right. And, you know, we've been so fortunate in Canada. We do tend to get all our election information night of. But this could be different because 
of the hand counting, the way that we, we process the ballot, which is, is very safe and secure mm-hmm. and time-consuming. So, um, yes, we might not know who our prime minister is at, uh, at midnight on the 20th. It's a pleasure to have Andrea Morantz with us. Andrea is with Elections Canada's Vancouver office. Our phone lines are open if you have any questions about voting this September. Uh, now's your chance to go right to the top here and, and find out directly from Elections Canada. Uh, 604-280-9898. And of course, my email box is always open, sterling at cknw.com. And Andrea, I got this from Sheila in North Van during the break. I'm now a little confused. What's the difference between voting at an Elections Canada office tomorrow and the advance poll? The advance poll is, um, is a structured vote. It's you, you're assigned to a polling place the same as you are for, um, for polling days. Okay. So, um, so if you want to vote on at, at the advance polls, there's four days of advance polls, the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th of September. And those polls are open from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And it's very similar to what you see on polling day. Right. And, and you can vote during that time. We were talking earlier about uh, people who are, are concerned about COVID. Mm-hmm. So th- this may be a good option for them as well. There are, uh, we, we're taking enormous um, precautions, and I want to really assure people that Elections Canada has put a lot of thought and effort into making sure that electors are safe when they go to the polls. Mm-hmm. So there'll be social distancing. Um, we are asking people to wear masks, of course, anywhere that it's um, under the public health orders that are still requiring it, they're required to wear masks. Mm-hmm. But we're encouraging everyone to, and we'll have masks um, at the entrance to the polling place. There will be lots of uh, the social distancing. There'll be hand sanitizer. The poll workers will be behind a plexiglass barrier, and there will be fewer people working at the polls. So there'll just be one assigned to each each poll. Ah. Now, so will the individual parties still have their scrutineer representatives? Will that still that process still be? Will they still rather be part of the process? Uh, yes, they will. But okay. they will, uh, and they will be wearing masks, and they will be removed from from the public. Well, it's interesting that you would mention that this, and I appreciate the fact that you have done so, because the the only form that we've been aware of uh, in terms of Elections Canada's additional preparations for this election, unlike previous elections happening while a pandemic's fourth wave is underway, the only reason we know about this, Andrea, is because we've been told through the various media reports that this election is going to cost approximately $100 million more than a typical $500 million election with the extra 100 mil going specifically to address COVID protocols Canada-wide. Yes. Um, I don't know if that entire increase in cost will be strictly for the COVID sure. measures, but it will certainly be some of it. And, you know, elections are expensive and, and there are... Um, there are it, it takes a long time to to sort through all of the costs of an election mm-hmm. 
So there are many, many elements that go into that that figure. Indeed, and we were told that Elections Canada would have preferred the maximum campaign period as opposed to the minimum, the one that you got. However, of course, you're not a political agency. You're an agency of the Parliament of Canada, so you do what what is requested of you, but it makes the job a little harder. To the phones now, Bob in North Vancouver. Good morning, sir. Yes, I just wanted to compliment uh, Election Canada on their planning. Uh, and yes, you know, she's mentioned about the uh, people displaced and have lost their homes in the fires. But, and, and it's not their fault. Mm, of course but not. Those, those people, uh, one of the last things on their mind is voting. Mm-hmm. So in effect, the federal government, the liberals have dis- disenfranchised them. And, and there's no way that, you know, that there can be late ballots or anything like that. Well, uh, the, the late that's a fair point uh, to the, 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 the point of the late ballot. We don't allow anything past the expiration of, uh, of time on Election Day for votes to be tabulated in Canada. But, Andrea, to the other points, um, any comments at all? And I know some well, of it's political, I, and, and you, you, yeah. you don't want to get into the politics of, of, of this is an appropriate time for an election or not. That's, it's not your job. You execute when requested to do so. But, you know, right. a lot of Canadians are going, geez, terrible timing. Well, I, I, I think I can reassure people a bit on that front that um, Elections Canada's job really is to be prepared for an election mm-hmm. at any time. Right. So we have people who are constantly working on contingency plans and working on, okay, what do we do if? And really, it was back in probably March of 2020 that the, um, the COVID task force started their work. You know, okay, what will it look like if there is a, um, a COVID uh, election? So tremendous amount of work went went into that, and and to the point of um, the question of our people being disenfranchised. Right. Well, that's that is our job. Right. That is very important to us, and I I totally understand the point of saying this may not be top of mind, but our job is to make sure that anyone who wants to vote can vote. And that's Anyone where the... who, who is qualified, registered, wants to vote, that we are going to give them alternatives and the ability to vote. Yeah, I, I thought you might want to take Bob up on his point about disenfranchisement. That's where our conversation actually began, Bob, about a half an hour ago by my asking uh, our guest right off the top, uh, what is Elections Canada going to do about those British Columbians specifically, because it's a BC question, who have been uh, displaced, to say the very least. Uh, and uh, that's where the conversation began. Uh, disenfranchisement uh, is, is, is uh, I suppose, a debatable word, but Andrew, any Canadian citizen who wishes to vote on Election Day, on or before Election Day 2021, can indeed do so. There are the, uh, they can vote at an Elections Canada office up until September 14th. They can vote by mail. They can vote at the advance polls that are open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on September 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th. 
and they or they can vote on election day. But keep in mind that September 14th date, because that is the last day you can vote at an Elections Canada office. That is the last day that you can apply for a mail-in ballot. After September 14th at 6 p.m., your only alternative for voting is to vote at your assigned poll. Very interesting these days. When you talk to analysts and voters alike, we all seem to be able to agree on some of the priority items that are concerning Canadians as we go into this election phase. And certainly top three for anyone anywhere in the country is the issue of affordability. And affordability, to many extents, is driven by interest rates. So far, we have we are living in a time of artificially depressed interest interest rates, and, of course, for many, including Americans who are already hearing from their Federal Reserve chairman, uh, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when will those artificially depressed interest rates begin to rise. We're hearing about two increases from the Federal Reserve for United States next year. Up here in Canada, well, our next guest says he doesn't think that the Bank of Canada is going to pull the trigger too quickly on raising interest rates in Canada. Our next guest is the chief economist of Central One Credit Union. It's a pleasure to welcome Brian Yu back to CKNW Weekend Mornings. Hello, Brian. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. You've written a couple of articles recently about uh, the uh, employment situation in Canada that I want to get to, but let's start with the interest rates, Brian. Why are you comfortable, uh, even in the wake of Jerome Powell saying, well, you know, it's likely that a couple of uh, bumps are going to happen in 22 down here. Uh, You seem to be comfortable with the fact that that's not going to ripple northward across the border. Why, Brian? Well, but I think that uh, number one in terms of the the rate picture, um, you know, uh, the next move will be up uh, at some point. Uh, I think right now we're we're pretty much at the uh, the bottom of the um, of the of the rate cycle. Uh, For it's sure. Really a question of when. Um, you know, we are looking at late next year in terms of a, of a single rate bump uh, from the Bank of Canada. I think there's a lot of factors right now um, uh, in terms of the economy that are likely to hold back. Uh, any moves, even in the the Federal Reserve, I think we'll we'll start, probably start to see them push back a little bit as well. In that, um, although inflation is it's pretty is, is uncomfortably high at this point, um, you know we're seeing a lot of uh, risks right now emanate from the the Delta variant of the COVID nineteen. Sure, we're, we're still grappling with that. Um, the economy itself is uh, improved, but it, it's still uh, a little bit away from where uh, the Bank of Canada would actually want it to be. Um, it, it's uh, we're. we're close to where we were probably pre-pandemic for employment, but um, we lost a lot of ground uh, during the pandemic where we should be uh, in the uh, in uh, the absence of a pandemic. Right. And another part of the equation, Brian, some would say that as we struggle to restore our economy to where it was, indeed to build on that going forward, uh, that rebuild, that recovery process is greatly assisted by lower interest rates. It allows people to take a, a risk, borrow some money, make an investment in, in, in an enterprise. Uh, and those rates are uh, uh, very helpful at this phase of recovery. Yes, um, it's been helpful for the uh, during the period of the uh, of the recovery thus far. Um, since we've kind of went through various shutdowns, um, the the housing market in itself has been on a tear. Um, really, it's kind of started to slow and moderate, uh, but it's been a key driver of the of the uh, recovery phase thus far. But what we're missing in the economy is still 
um, business investment. There's a lot of uncertainty related to, well, where is the COVID, where's the pandemic headed? Sure. Are we going to fully reopen? Um, and those kinds of questions are, are clearly being asked by businesses. Uh, and also, they're not looking to make any major long-term decisions without that kind of information available. So what we're still seeing is that business investment cycle is still quite weak. Yes. Uh, and these interest rates, uh, low interest rates, do help uh, to maintain or at least to help uh, drive some of that going forward and also provide uh, some certainty that you know costs aren't are the interest costs aren't going to be exceptionally strong or high uh, going forward for that investment. And do you think that same mindset applies even though they're talking more aggressively about interest rate increases at some future point? Do you think do you still think Brian that the United States is also held in check by the need to recover? Um, so the U.S. economy has actually grown quite a bit quicker. Um, they, they've clearly they prioritized the economy a little bit more. We didn't see as many. Restrictions as we saw north of the uh, north of the border, uh, so their economy itself outside the labor market has uh, rebounded um, quite well. Um, and the idea uh, previously was that um, you know they'd be a long ways from uh, hiking any rates, and so some of the movement in terms of the um, chatter right now or expectations is moving that into that late 2022, 2023 versus 2024, which was where markets were expecting it not so long ago. Right. Um, so. Canada, we, we are looking at a, a late 2022 rate hike. Uh, so we're still looking at that same uh, directional phase and, and also pretty probably uh, in timing-wise, it's not that far off of the, uh, the U.S. as well. Um, so, we, you know, when we're looking at the, the overall rates, they're both going up it's, um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. So I think we have to recognize that. Brian, uh, can you help uh, our, uh, me and our listeners understand how the Bank of Canada thinks? Uh, because they're said to be guardians of uh, of inflation, and they lose their minds when inflation hits 2% or beyond. Well, as you mentioned moments ago, inflation is at 3-plus percent right now, 3.4 or 3.7. I'm hearing a couple of different numbers. Nonetheless, it's well over 2, and yet the Bank of Canada is restraining itself from doing much of anything. Again, why not? Yeah, like we're we're sitting. Uh, we had a pretty positive surprise in terms of the uh, uh, the inflation rates. Um, it was a hit about three point seven percent. So quite strong. Um, but what the Bank of Canada is looking for primarily is the sign that it's persistent inflation. It's not a one off moves. Um, one of the challenges during this whole pandemic is that we've seen a lot of things happen that um, are abnormal. Yes, uh, obviously. Um, so. In terms of the U.S., if we were to look at the U.S. picture of inflation, a lot of it was driven by uh, used car prices. Um, also, uh, as they reopened, you saw a lot of things like travel costs just surge quite mm-hmm. rapidly. Um, those are one-offs. The, they won't. Uh, they may be a level shift in terms of prices. Prices have gone up; they'll probably stay relatively high. Um, but uh, it's not going to persist as an ongoing uh, rate of growth in inflation. So prices don't continue to, to rise at that same pace. And I think the Bank of Canada is looking at that somewhat of a similar picture in Canada as well, where we see, you know, one of the, the key drivers of inflation were gas prices yep. due to oil and global oil prices. Um, that doesn't continue to go up in perpetuity. Um, they were likely going to see some of a, of a, of a pullback, which we already have. Uh, so some of that is considered transitory or temporary inflation. Um, we're also looking to see that um, some of those factors in the south of the border will probably uh, show more in the data going forward here as well as we reopen things like traveling costs are going airfares rise as a result of of uh, reopening restaurants repricing but again those are sort of these one-offs making up for past uh, weak 
inflation numbers. Mm. So I, I think the bank has looking through that in terms of the longer term picture of saying, well, is this inflation persistent? Is it will we continue to see these uh, increase in price? And I, know, and I think that they're still weighing on the side that it's unlikely that uh, all of these gains are going to last. Uh, similarly, when we look at through the labor market, um, you know, we're still not where we want to be right. for um, the labor market. And that's not going to put a, a lot of upward pressure on uh, wages throughout the economy. Um, and wages tend to drive long-term inflation. I want to, I want to um, so, talk a, a little bit more yeah. about, about what you've written on unemployment and, and that sort of thing in, in, in a couple of minutes. But first, though, back to your point about lower interest rates and the housing market, just connecting those two dots. What we have seen uh, in in the last few months, Brian, is an increase in requirements. The, In other words, the stress test has been made more difficult. Has that altered the situation at all? Um, not too much. Uh, I, I would say that, first of all, in terms of the stress test, there was already one in place prior yeah. to the most recent changes. So it, it does change the, um, the, the ability to, um, to afford for, for some households when they were getting to the market. Uh, roughly about purchasing power probably dropped about 5% uh, as a result of that. Um, so there was some um, some of a dampening from them, but not too much. I think that when we look at the the overall context of the past year, um, when you look at where mortgage rates were prior to the pandemic, uh, you were sitting somewhere around two point eight percent for five years. Now you're down to two percent uh, for five years. It's been a um, for a lot of households getting into the market. They have seen their buying power increase. Yeah. Um, but that's also led, of course, to the fact that there hasn't been a lot of supply, so people have been bidding up homes quite a bit in the past years to between about 10 to 15 percent um, across the province. Canada's labor market continued to mend in July as third wave restrictions eased, but the pace of recovery underwhelmed expectations. Our guest wrote about this a couple of days ago in Business in Vancouver magazine under the headline, BC Employment Hits Speed Bump in July. Our guest is Brian Yu, Chief Economist with Central One Credit Union. And Brian, what happened in July? Because we did get some increases across the board in employment, particularly in the service sector, which, of course, had been devastated by COVID. So we you would, would expect to see a return of those numbers, but we didn't see much else. What happened? Yeah, the, the numbers were a little bit underwhelming. Uh, we did gain in Canada uh, probably 94,000 jobs, about half percent. Um, and this is about half of what we saw in June or, or less than half of June's numbers. But, uh, but market expectations or the general forecast consensus was sitting closer to around 150 to 175,000. So a little bit of a miss on those numbers. Right. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, the, the gains were largely in those uh, pandemic restrictions sensitive sectors, um, uh, community food services, the reopenings of, of various um, uh, of, um, restaurants and things like that all helped to drive some of this gain. But was, some of the concern here was that some of the other sectors, we didn't see as much of, a, of an improvement or much of an improvement in terms of the manufacturing, the, the biz, other business sectors. Uh, so Suggest that some of that, some of these gains might be a little harder to come by as we go forward. Um, and similarly, I think again, if, without Ontario, I think we a lot of other provinces where we would have expected more gains uh, didn't uh, didn't uh, showcase that at all. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ontario uh, behind British Columbia in terms of the restrictions and the loosening of same over the past several months. So it would be expected a, a return to employment fullness in Ontario might uh, take a little longer than BC, right? Yeah, absolutely. BC has actually done quite well um, 
comparatively to all the other to other provinces. But the only province right now where, where headline employment is back to where it was in uh, February 2020, so pre-pandemic. Um, most other provinces are, are below or even full more than a full percent below where they were at that time. Um, so yeah, Ontario um, with its sort of more of a lag and reopening um, plans. Uh, and and it's, it's definitely been a, a, stalling, a stalling relative to other provinces. A couple of questions coming out of that, Brian. You mentioned in the first half of our conversation that one thing you're a little disappointed in, especially in this era of artificially depressed in historically low interest rates, is the fact that business investment in itself appears to be lagging behind some other sectors. And, and some of that hesitancy is, of course, absolutely attributable to the uncertainty surrounding the times in which we live. What other factors are playing into it? Well, yeah, I think primarily right now it, it is the the aspect of, um, you know, future business opportunities, what, what's happening in terms of the reopening. So, and, and I think this really kind of depends upon what type of sectors these businesses are in. Okay. Uh, for those which are tourism-oriented, there is no, uh, as much as we're reopening U.S. borders, is similar, and hopefully potentially overseas borders. Um, well, the levels in which they're going to come back are going to be lower than they were pre-pandemic. Um, just not uh, vaccinations are, are pretty low in a lot of parts, other parts of the uh, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be a, a factor that's going to uh, impede some of that uh, investment and also a reinvestment by by companies. Um, and other components here is that although they're, um, you know, when we look at some of these other sects, even some of these hardest hit sectors. Um, there are some labor shortages, even in these accommodation food services. People have moved on. Sure. So these businesses may also be finding some challenges and in, uh, in general um, hiring conditions and growth opportunities if they don't have staff. And what, what other, uh, in terms of other possible factors, Brian, we're hearing from those, particularly in the restaurant and hospitality sector, that uh, they're competing in many cases against federal benefit programs, which offer uh, comparable incomes uh, to the jobs that they have available. And until said programs expire, a lot of people are quite happy to stay home and be paid not to work. Yeah, that has been an argument. It's, um, it's unclear um, in terms of the data whether we can attribute all of it to that. Some of it's just fear. Um, as, as much as we, we look at it as saying there's a certain benefit, people generally speaking, I think, want to work. Uh, at the same time, when we're thinking about uh, potential for health issues or, or the health exposures, uh, individuals are making that, that, um, making that decision. Right. But, uh, given that there are these benefits in play in, in the market and given that they prioritize health or they have other issues, including childcare issues um, uh, due to um, the, the pandemic, that they aren't a, at that scenario where they can work uh, fully. Um, so we are, you know, there are some, some, some issues with that. Employment insurance numbers, you know, there are some um, individuals that are able to access that even when they're working as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for businesses, the other question is always that, you know, given that the changing environment, um, you know, our salary our, is pay high enough. That's the other question. Yeah. Um, and is it enough to attract employees back, given that, like I said, some of these individuals who were uh, laid off during the pandemic, they may have just moved on into another into another sector. Or they've decided that even if they desire to return to the sector that they left because it's the labor of love and they get paid too, uh, the fact is that, you know, here we are uh, almost at September 7th, even though Dr. Henry is going to tell us likely tomorrow not to count 
too heavily on September 7th as the beginning date of phase four. It was a suggested date. And, and my point here, Brian, is that as we look forward to September 7th, we're also looking in the rearview mirror at what's happened in the central Okanagan to the restaurant and hospitality industry. They've had bars now closed and nightclubs closed and no serving booze after 10 o'clock. And, and people down here in that industry are rolling their eyes going, oh, brother, here we go again. Do I really want to go back and take that that risk on? So uh, to your point, of many of them have moved on, I think, with good reason, don't you? Yeah, and I think that there is. You, you can't stay on the sidelines forever. Right. <laughs> as, a, as, an, uh, as someone, you're going to upgrade your skills. You're going to change uh, uh, change um, 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 businesses or, or other types of occupations. And the fact is I've been in the restaurant industry. It's a tough gig. You sure <laughs> and, is. And um, it is. Uh, and it's, it's, it's challenging. So, um, and, and we are looking at other regions as well. If you look at Ontario, they're kind of putting a pause on their reopening phase as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the case counts we're seeing in COVID, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if we do a, a take, a put, hit pause or, or slow down some of this momentum um, and inter- until Delta kind of gets under control. So what do you think, Brian, if that is the case, if we are required not to regress necessarily to as the, has been required in the central Okanagan, but suppose we just come to an understanding fairly quickly, as possibly as soon as tomorrow when Dr. Henry speaks, uh, uh, that the fact that this whole thing may quite be delayed. Uh, so how how is that going to affect a sector that's uh, the an economy that's already seeing limited infusions of investment excitement and particularly capital yeah and I, I think it obviously will um, slow that momentum um, any ideas of, of, um, of fully reopening or, or fully reinvesting is, is going to um, be a little uh, put back a little bit uh, we have to remember that a lot of these a lot of these sectors or these hardest hit sectors are operating currently well below capacity anyways, oh yeah mm-hmm. and they their revenues are down um, they're, they're they're nowhere near where they where they want to be um, but I'm um, at the same time, I'm, I'm kind of looking at in terms of the, the fact that we have uh, done quite well in terms of adapting over the past uh, 16 months, and these businesses have changed their business models um, quite a bit. That at least they will survive, I, I believe, even in this scenario. Um, but again, it, it is, goes back to that question of um, the investment cycle it being uh, ongoingly weak um, going forward, um, and again, stalling some of this recovery phase. Right. Brian, final 30 seconds. Great to have you back on the show. We do appreciate it. Are you optimistic at all that a year from now, things will be a heck of a lot better than they are now? Yeah, I think I'm always optimistic. I think that, you know, we've proven, we've seen proven that at least science has worked quite a bit in terms of getting us to this point. I don't even think we were expected to be at this point if we were talking um, even in last November. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful that um, you know we will move to that full reopening and we'll be able to get this into the rearview mirror a little bit more. Um, doesn't mean we won't have COVID. I think it'll just mean that we'll have a better um, and we'll we'll be able to uh, to uh, work through it better. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.